Can anybody tell me where this, uh, who first sang this song? He's got high hopes. He's got high hopes. He's got high apple pie in the sky hopes. Do you know who's, who was first to sing that? Not Pinocchio. Someone suggested Pinocchio earlier. Anybody know? Frank Sinatra started that song uh, in some movie I never heard of. But anyway, you maybe would have got it if I sang part of the chorus, which I haven't quite, or the verse, which I haven't quite figured out about the ants and the rubber tree plants. Remember that? Does that ant think he can get that rubber tree plants? And then I like the way it goes at the end. Oops, there goes another rubber tree. Oops, there goes another rubber tree. That's high hopes, right? Okay, now I want you to listen to our scripture reading for today, and I want you to tell me if this passage puts your hopes up or somewhere less than up, okay? And we're in the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts like it's a learning lab because these people loved their community. And so we're trying to figure out by reading these passages, do we figure out how we are supposed to love our community? And we're in Acts chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, I'd love to have you read along with me. We're in the New Testament. Go about two-thirds of the way toward the back. You should end up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can look it up online. And we actually were given praise this week because we got a grant to upgrade our internet. So they flipped the switch on that this past Wednesday. And man, have we become productive since we got faster internet. But it should help all of you too if you're using our internet. And there's some new password stuff in the bulletin if you want to get on that. But we'd love to have you read along on these passages. So Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And does this passage put you up in the upper level of hopes, or does it take you down? Think about where it puts your hope. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, which was about 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. 
By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I'd like to introduce you to a kid named TJ. TJ was nine the first time he saw his father overdose. His family had just moved into a small apartment, which was the latest in what was kind of an endless string of relocations, the latest coming in the middle of the night when they left their home, packaging all their things up in black plastic bags because they had received an eviction notice. TJ's father was a gentleman who loved to cook, but he could not conquer his addictions. TJ's mother was in prison for heroin possession and prostitution. On the morning of the overdose, TJ and his brother were playing in the living room on top of the blankets that they laid out every night to sleep on. TJ's father was getting ready to make pancakes when he stepped into the bathroom with a sock that contained a needle, a spoon, a lighter, and cotton swabs. A few minutes later, he came out, opened the refrigerator to grab some eggs, and collapsed on the floor. When the kids saw their father, he was convulsing, and his face was turning blue. TJ's siblings knew exactly what to do because they'd seen this before. His brother rolled dad onto his side. His sister opened his mouth to make sure he did not choke on his tongue, and they yelled for TJ to run next door to call 911 on the neighbor's phone. My name is TJ. My dad is passed out, and we don't know what happened. He's not breathing. TJ lied to the operator because he knew exactly why his father was unconscious, but he didn't want to say in front of the new neighbors. After hanging up the phone, TJ went outside to wait for the ambulance. His father was treated at the hospital in the morning, charged at the police station in the afternoon, and was home by evening. He made spaghetti. And TJ turned 10 a couple weeks after that. Do you have high hopes for TJ? Or lesser hopes? If you met a kid who was growing up in this kind of circumstance, where would your hope be? One of the things that bugged me while I was reading Acts chapter 3 this week was the question, what do I expect God to do in my neighborhood? Do I have hopes for my neighborhood or no hopes for my neighborhood? The first two chapters of Acts paint this wonderful picture of the early Christian church. It's kind of an ideal setting. The first followers of Jesus receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They do miraculous wonders and signs. They proclaim the love of God to everyone who will listen. They receive forgiveness of sins, and the church grows rapidly. A love-saturated, spirit-loved community prays together and studies God's Word together. They worship together. They care for each other. It's all good. It's, it sounds like the perfect church. Commissioned by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, this little band of disciples is about to go on the, the, the most incredible missionary adventure 
that the world has ever seen. It's all being unleashed in those first couple chapters. One of the commentators I'm reading on this is a guy named John Stott, who's a theologian. This is what he says about that beginning. He says, The good ship Christ Church was ready to catch the wind of the Spirit and set sail on her voyage of spiritual conquest. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Who would like to get on that ship? Huh? A Spirit-empowered movement of God in the world. Where's the hopes for the church when you read this? High hopes? But wait, there's more. Actually, this is the whole quote from that John Stott. He says this, The good ship Christ Church was ready to catch the wind of the Spirit and set sail on her voyage of spiritual conquest, but almost immediately a perilous storm blew up, a storm of such ferocity that the church's very existence was threatened. What happens to your hopes when you read that? If the chief actor in the first two chapters of Acts is the Holy Spirit, he suggests that the chief actor in the next several chapters of the book of Acts seems to be Satan. Because this church comes under intense attack from within and from without. First of all, there's this kind of external attack that happens where uh, persecution is unleashed. Actually, the sermon that Peter preaches here in Acts 3 is immediately followed up with the first intense persecution of the church. So there's Satan attacking the church from outside. And then we see that as the church goes out from Jerusalem, it starts to spread to all these cities, the church is planted. All of the letters that come after the book of Acts are like letters to the churches. We call them epistles. Paul wrote back to these churches. And in most cases, you know why he had to write to them? Because they needed to be set straight about something. The church was falling apart from within. So the church is being attacked from without and attacked from within, and things become pretty serious from this point forward. Now, what does that do for your hope for the church? The first clue that the early church is not perfect comes in chapter 3, right at the very beginning, when we see that it's in a difficult place. The the world is still messy, even though God is working in these amazing ways. Chapter 3 began this way, remember, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, about 3 in the afternoon, and there was a man who was lame from birth who was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. The world of the early church is a world with poverty. It's a world with cripples, with beggars. It's a world with pain. This world of the early church is a messy world. It's a broken world. In fact, this passage introduces us to what would have been considered the, the poor of the poor, the worst, the bottom of the barrel kind of people. If you were reduced to begging for your existence, you were considered the, the, the only option for survival for these individuals is the compassion, the mercy of those who pass by. Every day they've got to collect enough in their alms to make it. And in that day, maybe not unlike today, poor is a lot more than just an economic condition. Being poor also says a lot about your 
social capital, like your connections to the world. And in this day, if you had no support, no social connection, especially no family, then you were in dire situation because your family was part of what kept, it was like your safety net. Your family provided security, support, food, clothing, shelter. This was all part of your family. To lose family meant an immediate descent to the bottom. There's very little hope for someone who's left alone with no family. And it seems that this man has lost his family. And so he's lost social status and financial means and respect and hope. He has no hope. He's left begging. And begging were kind of the untouchables of the... He can't even go in the temple, you know. Because in this day, if you were crippled, then it was assumed that that meant that there was some kind of sin in your life. He, couldn't, he wasn't even allowed to go inside the temple. He sits outside hoping for someone to give him alms. There's actually a couple of other famous beggars in the Bible. One of them is a guy called Blind Bartimaeus. You remember that guy, that name? This is from Mark chapter 10. Blind Bartimaeus was a guy who sat by the road begging. Then there's a story about Lazarus who was sitting outside the gate of a rich man and the picture that's painted of him is pretty dire. And then there's this crippled beggar who sits outside the temple. Each of these beggars exemplifies degradation and hopelessness. If you're a beggar, hope for success, low. One thing in their favor, at least in this day, was that almsgiving was kind of a sacred obligation for at least for the Israelites. Part of their act of worship was giving to the poor and trying to bring about justice. Jesus called people to do that all the time, to give to the poor. And in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples often are portrayed as giving alms to those who need it. One measure of discipleship, according to Jesus, is generosity and giving to those who are needy. Maybe you've heard these words before from Matthew 25. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Maybe this is why the beggar calls on Peter and John. He knows they're Israelites. Maybe he knows they're followers of Jesus. He's hopeful that he's going to get something from them. Think about your reaction to beggars today. Do you have hopes for, high hopes for beggars or low hopes? I know there's a couple of corners in Cedar Rapids where frequently somebody is sitting out there. And some of you can name the corners. You know right where they're at. I don't know the whole story behind these guys. I just know they sit out there with these little cardboard signs and they hope that somebody will give them something. I came across someone yesterday at a completely different corner. I'm right down here at Johnson Avenue and Wiley. This is our own neighborhood. This is right down the hill from my house. Johnson Avenue and Wiley. You know, kitty corner from Hoover? And there's somebody standing there with a cardboard sign. Honestly, it says, I am really homeless and I need help. And my reaction when I saw this person standing on that particular corner, my hope for their success, they haven't even picked a good corner. I'm thinking, I almost want to like suggest, 
Just go down to Johnson and Edgewood. Maybe that's a better corner even. (laughs) So if we're honest, what's our hope for somebody who finds themselves in this situation? Not good. So this guy reaches out to Peter and John, and this is what happens. Peter looks straight at him, as did John, which had just struck me just now that maybe that's the first gift because often when I see a beggar, I don't even look at him. Think about that for a minute. All right, Peter looked at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, walk. And when I read that, I thought, what is this? Does he have the audacity not to give the guy the money he's hoping for, but instead to offer him something else. Does Paul hope, really? Uh, Peter, does he hope that he could actually walk? TJ again, this kid who saw his dad overdose many times after that. By the time he was 16, he dropped out of high school. And the reason he gave for it was because he couldn't deal with it anymore. There were so many things. It was overwhelming. It was easier for him to quit than to continue. He got a job at a car wash, and almost immediately after he started at the car wash, he got fired because he wasn't willing to follow directions. So he got a job at McDonald's, but when customers were rude to him, he lost control, and the classic one was some lady asked for a different kind of dipping sauce for her chicken nuggets and so he yelled get out of my drive-thru and he threw the chicken nuggets at her car he got fired so he went to work at Hollywood video and sometimes he would be so upset that in the middle of his shift he would start to cry for no reason And he often came to work late, and sometimes he just didn't show up at all for no reason. In the morning, he would yell at himself. He would look at himself in the mirror, and he would say, you have to do better. But he couldn't. He started to wonder if the only way for him to cope would be to take drugs. So now 16-year-old TJ, what are your hopes for him? Peter has the nerve to hope that the crippled beggar is going to walk. That's a pretty high hope. But it's not just a hope. Peter delivers. Taking him by the right hand, Peter helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles become strong. He jumped to his feet and he begins to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized that's the same guy who used to sit begging at the temple gate every day. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. He jumps to his, this guy has never walked. He gets to his feet and he starts jumping around. And the cutest thing I think about this story at this point is he like gloms on to Peter and John. He's like, these, these guys, they did this for me. He's like following around. They go into the temple. He goes into the temple. The first time he's ever been in the temple. This is the place where God's presence was felt to come, right into the temple. And he's jumping around. Where's his hopes right now? He's he's got high hopes. 
because God has just transformed his life. God has just done, the guy who had no hope now has hope because God has interviewed. There's been a healing love that has come into his life and I imagine that the people in Solomon's colonnade are standing there with their mouths open watching this. They, this is one time when you see everybody like running to get to church. They're like, come on in here and see what's happening. This guy that we've all seen every day is now running around praising God. He has been healed. They had no hope for the beggar. That's part of their surprise. They saw the guy sitting out there every single day and they thought, we got no hope for that guy. Now, the situation has changed. He's been, he appears healed completely. I think Peter was being just a little bit ironic in this next part when he says to those who are kind of gathered watching this kind of stunned, he says, what are you looking at? That's what he says to them. It's not our power. It's God's power. And isn't this just the kind of thing that you expect God to do in this world that's broken? Don't you really expect that God's going to come in and start to repair the damage, to, start, to set right all that is wrong? to heal everything that is broken. This is the kind of thing that God has been talking about since the beginning of human history. That once sin entered into the world and the world was broken, ever since then God has said, there's going to be a day when all that brokenness is restored and everything is set right. And this is just the beginning today outside the temple with the crippled beggar. God restores him physically by giving him healing. God restores him emotionally by giving him hope. The guy with no hope now has hope. He restores him socially by giving him a place, a new place in the community. Now he's part of it. He belongs. God restores him spiritually by giving him the freedom to now enter into the temple, the place where he can encounter God. Isn't this just the kind of thing that God wants to do? Restore what's broken. This is what healing love looks like. It brings joy and awe and wonder. And I start to think about what could that mean in our neighborhoods? What could that mean for my neighbors? You know, there's a battle and it's just starting to brew here in Acts chapter 3 because Satan recognizes something. I think he picks it up pretty quick that this little band of disciples that are following Jesus this little band of disciples is going to take healing love everywhere they go. And I think you can already begin to imagine what's happening here, that as these people are coming to God, they're going to take healing love to the entire world. And, and Satan doesn't like that, and he still doesn't like that. So there's this battle going on to say, can we bring healing love into our neighborhoods? Can we bring it to our neighbors? Can we bring hope? Can we bring hope even in situations where there's no hope? Can we raise it? And i got to confess to you that there's a battle going on in me around this. Because I have a tendency to look at certain people in certain circumstances and you know what I think? You know what my honest assessment is? There's no hope. Sometimes I think that. I look at people and I, I don't think God can do anything with that. Sometimes I look at whole neighborhoods and I think, oh my gosh, look what's going on in that neighborhood. I don't know what God could do there. I confess to you right now my small thinking and my faithlessness. But I begin to wonder, what would it look like if healing love came to my neighborhood, to my neighbors? 
And what if healing love came to our city? And every neighborhood in our city. And no neighborhood was excluded. I got a neighborhood in Cedar Rapids, and many of you are going to be able to recognize the neighborhood as soon as we give you the name, that when I drive through this neighborhood, I think, ah, I don't know what God could do there. That's a tough, it's a tough neighborhood. It really is. And yet, I am inspired by people who come and they, they believe God could do something even in this neighborhood. And sometimes God helps me in this battle by sending scripture like Acts chapter 3 or some other little reminder that makes me think, you know what, maybe God could do more than I imagine. And somebody sent me a video. People are always sending me little video clips of things and I appreciate that. I really do. And oftentimes God uses those to like bring me up short and make me think differently about something. And the little clip we're going to show you now is about that neighborhood that I often have low hopes for. And yet when I saw this video, it made me think differently about this neighborhood. So I want you to watch this. This, Wellington Heights is not the ghetto. I'm sorry, it's not the ghetto. For everybody that keeps saying, oh, you live in the hood, the southeast side, I'm not coming over there. Man, you got a lot more to, 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 to think about because it's not the ghetto. I ain't figured that out yet, why it's called the ghetto. I mean, it's way more safer than where I'm from. Neighbors friendly, everybody else friendly, no problems, no activity right here on this part of town in particular. We don't hear gunshots every night. We like it. They be having good things going on, like they got books and stuff in there for the kids, just to run the kids around, you know. But it's, I don't, I don't know how to put it in a way, explain it to this area. But it's a good area, it's a nice area. You just see all the families enjoying the weather, and they're just walking as a family, enjoying it, going to the parks together. It's just really beautiful to see families actually doing stuff together. It is kind of, kind of rough, but it's, there's so much more to look for than just the violence. I think it's a nice, quiet neighborhood. It's a nice place, and it's a nice place to bring it. it it's, it's good schools out here, good things out here. One of the things I've noticed um, in this neighborhood versus other neighborhoods I've lived in is when you walk around, when you just when you're just walking around and, and going wherever, people will look up and say hi to you. You know, hi, how's it going? I never got that anywhere else in town. But I really, I love it here. I really do. that live here it's like uh, they have history you know so they're here for years and years it's just it's a it's a it's, a, it's definitely a place where you can start over and, and and it's opportunities out here it's a lot of opportunities i'm gonna say it like this like i'm in the midst of buying a house in the weather tonight neighborhood and in chicago i never would have thought about looking at my credit so it man wellington heights I'm not going to even say what it's a high Cedar Rapids will change your life, the will, because it's not the ghetto. If this is the ghetto, then I think, hey, everybody should live in a ghetto. <laughs> Hello.
I wonder what would happen if we thought God could bring healing love to our neighborhoods. What would that look like? What would it look like in Wellington Heights, Stony Point, Cherry Hill, Palo, Marion, Hiawatha? What, whatever, what's your neighborhood? Uh, there's a guy in our first service who grew up in Wellington Heights, and he came up to me right after. He said, I go to that barber shop. He was all excited about what's going on there, but he says, you know what? There's, there's, there's some bad stuff there, too. Like, this is the beauty of the church. The church goes into a world and into neighborhoods where there's bad stuff and says, God has the power to heal this, and he wants to. And he wants to use us to accomplish that. That's what healing love does, and that's what healing love looks like. We've been giving you some tools. I'd like you to take one out. It's in your bulletin. It's the cell sheet. It's a little insert that's inside there. And if you take that out and look at it, you'll see inside there's this little graph called, Who is my neighbor? Some of you have been working on that for a number of weeks already. It's designed to be your house is in the middle. And then can you name the eight neighbors who are the closest neighbors to you? And we've been working on making sure we all know our neighbors by name. And now we're inviting you to think about some other thing. If you would look at those names that you've got in those eight boxes and start to think of, well, what would healing love look like for them? And I actually got to have a really interesting conversation with one of my neighbors this week who is in desperate need of some healing love. And they were really open to talk about it. And I was just humbled that God is working in my neighbors to do that. I used to sometimes think of those people who are outside the church almost like they were the enemy. Like I have to go get them and get them converted and get them to come to Christ. But I don't have to do any of that. I just have to love them. And when we bring healing love, then God transforms the world. And he starts by transforming cities and neighborhoods and neighbors. Healing love changes all that. And here's how Acts 3 describes it. When Peter saw this, he spoke to the crowd, men of Israel, why are you so surprised at this? And why are you staring at us as though we made this happen? through our power or piety. It is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, who has done this thing to honor Jesus. Yes, it was faith in Jesus which gave this man health and strength in full view of all of you. That is healing love. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today and we thank you for the good news that we hear in this passage and the good news that we see being proclaimed by your church at the very beginning as your disciples followed into this world that is often so broken. And so God, we have hope that we can go from this place into our neighborhoods and into our broken world and we can bring love to our neighbors and to our neighborhoods. God, I want to pray a special prayer for anyone who might be even in this very place right now who is hurting and who's broken, who needs some restoration. And God, I pray that you would come close to them, that you would wrap your strong arms of love around them, that you would continue the good work that you've started, that you would bring about the restoration that you long to see, that you would restore all that is broken. And we look forward to that day, God, and we can think of individuals in our own lives who have special needs at this time. God, we pray for you to be involved in their life 
and help us not to look at these people as the enemy or as projects or as aliens or outcasts or the hopeless, but let us look at them, God, as people who are your children, who are loved by you, and God, would you bring hope, bring hope to our city and bring hope into our lives, and God, we thank you for what you're going to do, and we pray these things in your name, amen. I'm going to give you the opportunity to uh, continue to reflect about this and also respond if you're so led. We give back gifts and offerings as an expression of gratitude for what God has done. We also invite you to take the tear-offs that you've completed and put those in the baskets as well.